And this morning we're going to read Micah chapter 3. Uh, Micah was a prophet about between sort of 700 and 730 years uh, BC before Christ. And he was, uh, as we begin this chapter, he was in the middle of warning the people of God uh, that judgment was coming. In the first couple of chapters, he's warned them that the, the northern half of Israel is going to be wiped out by the great Assyrian Empire. Uh, and in, in chapter 3, he's going to give some of the reasons why judgment is coming. He's speaking to the people of God, therefore, uh, in those days uh, and convicting them of their sin. So let's read Micah 3 and verse 1. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay the skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they'll cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power and with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination, divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Let's pray. Our Father, it's in your light that we see light. And so we pray for a work of your spirit among us this morning uh, to behold, to love and to receive all that you have to say to us uh, through the Holy Spirit as he inspired this prophet Micah. Open our eyes, we pray, to see wonderful things out of your word. Amen. One of the things you're taught when you go to Bible college or theological college and sit in the classes that teach you to preach is that you need a grabby opening. You need something that persuades people it's worth listening to you for the next few minutes. I confess, having read Micah 3, this account of a prophet railing against the leaders and the prophets of Israel some, well, 2,700 and something years ago now, initially it wasn't clear to me what the link was to our day. And then I, I just looked at the front page of the, of the paper yesterday. Uh, the, the, the main headline in one of them was this. Uh, the property guru leading people into debt in pursuit of financial freedom. And it told the story of a guy called, called Samuel Leeds, who's apparently a YouTuber. 
who claims to have started investing in property age 17 and been completely self-sufficient, worth millions by age 21. And he can help you do it too. All you need to do is sign up to his course and he'll teach you how to become a property millionaire. So in that sense, the course is very good value. It's only £15,000. And many have fallen for this. The paper was full of tragic stories. Ex-servicemen who thought this would be their way to establish themselves once they left the forces. Now penniless and broken. It was a story of abuse of power. Of someone wealthy preying on the weak. But what was striking was right next to it was a second story. Vicar accused of bullying church choir in row described as disgrace to Christian community. This idea of the powerful bullying the weak, the strong preying on the vulnerable, sadly, is not a problem out there in the world alone. From Micah's day through to our own, it's a problem in the church. <coughs> Apparently, uh, trust in ministers of religion has dropped 20%. You know, they do these surveys every now and again. Have you seen them? What are the most trusted professions? It's always nurses and then doctors. Um, and then right at the bottom, politicians, uh, estate agents, advertising, uh, fake, sorry. Um, uh, over, over my lifetime, trust in ministers has dropped 20%. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's a correlation, but, but it's dropped 20% over my lifetime. Increasingly, the only time the church hits the press is when yet another minister has been discovered doing something terrible, abusing the power he's been given. And if, if you're someone who's not used to going to church, perhaps you're not a Christian, that might be one of the things that, that puts you off. Religion is just a way of exploiting the weak. And actually, wh- whoever you are, whether you, you, you profess faith or, or not, it, it may well be, in fact it will be for some of us, that we have suffered at the hands of those in power over us, whether it's in the workplace, perhaps even more tragically in the home, in marriage. It may be dark and secret. It may be something no one else knows about. But but tragically, it is incredibly common. We suffer at the hands of those in power. And what that can do is make us very unwilling to trust anybody, any other human, but also God himself who is this sort of almighty, powerful figure in the sky, and I dare get too close to. Even as a Christian, I have reservations about committing fully to him because, well, maybe he's just going to be another one of these powerful bullies. Well, I hope this morning Micah 3 will help us. He addresses two groups. He takes aim at two groups. They're both powerful. One are politicians and one are preachers or prophets. But both are in power. So let's first look at Micah addressing the politicians. The powerful. Uh, verse 1, uh, Micah says, Hear you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Uh, the, the word know there it doesn't just mean you know, you know it's wrong to murder and wrong to steal. It's not known in an intellectual sense. It's the word that, that the Bible uses when Adam knew Eve and she had a child. Okay? It's, it's, a, it's a euphemism in that sense. And the idea is that, that the rulers of God's people are meant to be the ones who are not just intellectually understanding right and wrong, justice and injustice, but embracing it. It's meant to be so dear to them that they won't let it go, close to their hearts. It's part of a general pattern in the Bible where leaders who are appointed to to care for God's people 
are exemplary. There is a higher standard for leadership in God's people than there is for membership in God's people in that sense. I think of the, the, what are called the pastoral epistles, uh, 1 Timothy and Titus in particular, where Paul is writing to our church leaders, um, helping them understand who, who should, should lead from within the congregation. He spends very little time on their skills. He says nothing about whether they're good at running the, the books, the, you know, the good accountants. He says nothing about their wealth. Have they done well in the, the world? Are they good businessmen? He says a tiny bit about their doctrine and ability to teach. Those are necessary qualifications, but they're not sufficient. Most of his time it is spent saying you must pick men who are patient, who are kind, who are not given to drunkenness, who, who won't exploit the weak. Tragically here in Israel, uh, that has gone horrifically wrong. If you look down at verses 9 and 10, they're addressed again. You heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, you detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. You build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Zion and Jerusalem are the same place. Zion's just a different name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem means, do you know what Jerusalem means? City of peace. It's come quite fashionable to put the word shalom into Christian songs, hasn't it? You know, we're looking for shalom. Um, it, that's the end of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It, words, it means peace. This city of peace is being built with blood. Now, Micah doesn't give us details. We don't know exactly what he means. What one um, uh, writer suggested that, that there's archaeological evidence that, that in Micah's day, a huge number of people from the north of Israel moved south to Jerusalem to escape the Assyrians. And perhaps these guys were not received as refugees and welcomed, but exploited to build up the city, slave labour to build new houses. Well, we don't know for sure. But either way, the powerful are exploiting the weak. And children, do you see in verses two and three how they're described? What would this make you think of? Uh, they are those who tear the skin off other people, take the flesh from the bones, who eat the flesh of people, flay their skin, break their bones into, pe- into pieces. What do they sound like? They sound like wild animals, don't they? The leaders are eating the people. Now, it's not literal, but, but, but Micah is describing them as if they're wild animals. Or actually, more likely, as if they are Assyrians. Remember, Assyrians are the big baddies, the empire that is sweeping in. And we know from history, and you can see this actually in the British Museum, if you, if you go down, we know that one of the things the Assyrians did when they conquered people is peg them to, gr- to the ground and, and flay them, skin them. A horrendous treatment And God is saying to to his own people, the leaders of his people, this is what you're doing. You've become like the enemy. New Testament tells us Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And tragically, sometimes that happens inside the church as well. The leaders become like the enemy, like Satan. Some of you, as I've said, will know this firsthand. You've been exploited, preyed upon physically or emotionally, psychologically, financially. And it's happened within the supposed people of God. It is someone who who professes faith, perhaps even someone in church leadership uh, who has done it. Micah shows that God cares, that he is furious about that, that he is not on the side of the bullies, but the oppressed, the weak, not the strong. You may have seen in the press over the 
uh, over Christmas, I think it was Boxing Day or the day after, yet another story coming out of what you'd broadly say is our constituency. I don't mean Christchurch Central or Leeds, uh, but, but the conservative evangelical church, uh, stories of, of, of ministers uh, who would be um, absolutely committed to the preaching of the Bible, who would hold to the same gospel, who, who in every way would be embracing what, what we're doing here, but actually who, who for years and years and years uh, were exploiting, manipulating uh, young men in their congregation. Uh, we mustn't be naive and think it's just a problem out there in the world. Corrupt politicians in Africa, exploitative dictators in Asia. No, we need to look first inside uh, and see two things, I think, uh, for us this morning. Uh, first, as I've said already, we must, we must care first and foremost about the character uh, of those going into mil- ministry. Uh, whether that's full-time ministry, you know, we send people off uh, to be pastors elsewhere or, or call them to be, to be elders or deacons in God's church here at Christchurch Central. Character is more important. Uh, some of you are thinking of going to ministry. Okay, you want this to be your, your job. You, you need to ask yourself and, and those around who are, are wondering whether these are the right people to send out, we need to ask of them. Are they going because, because they want to serve the Lord? Are they going because they want to care for God's people or are they going in order to get power? That there's a strange way, isn't there, that even in our tiny churches, you know, we're a tiny fraction of the, of the British population, aren't we? But, but even inside, our, in our little tiny world, it is possible that as you become a minister, that, that you get a bit of power, authority, you're looked up to. And so in our sort of funny little corner, if the big wide world is too scary, we're not going to do very well in our career, whatever, perhaps the church is a route to power. But, but although it might not be as extreme as the rules of Micah, if all we're after is for people to look up to us, to admire us, to be amazed by our spiritual wisdom, our theological insight, if that's what we're, look, we're after in leadership, then in many ways we're cannibalistic too. People are resources to feed our ego. They're not vulnerable sheep we want to care for. So we must care most about the character of those going into ministry. And secondly, let me introduce the second thing by asking you a question. For those of you who are regular here at least, and if you're a Christian who goes elsewhere to another church, ask it of your own situation. Who are you most in danger from spiritually? Who who in your life could could cause you most damage spiritually? Probably the answer is me. Spouse. But after that, it's it's probably me. At the moment, I'm the only minister here, the only elder. That's a problem. We need to sort it out. We're in the process. But that... The, the preacher at your church, the vicar, the pastor, whoever it is, the person who spends most of their time teaching, they are the biggest threat to you. And, and so you need to know, so if you remember here at Christchurch Central, you need to know how to get me fired. Okay, so it's, really, it's really important, genuinely. Not right now, unless you think I'm doing something wrong right now, but you need to know how to get me fired. You need to know how to remove power from those in authority. Churches are not dictatorships. Okay, so very specifically, if you remember here, how to get me fired. Uh, right at the moment, we don't have elders. Normally, if we had elders, you'd go to the elders. And if you had a problem with them and they weren't getting rid of me, then you'd go to what's called the presbytery. That's why we're not an independent church. We're part of a denomination. Uh, so you, you, specifically right now, you want to get in touch with Trinity Church York, the ministers and elders there. If you think I'm abusing power or teaching falsely, they have responsibility for us. 
Or you can go onto the IPC website, International Presbyterian Church website, and get in touch with the presbytery, the other elders. Church leaders go astray. Think of Paul, um, Paul's letters in the New Testament. At the end of a letter called Philemon, a little short letter, he talks about this guy Demas, who's a fellow worker. He's one of my colleagues, says Paul. Great to have Demas with me. A few years later, later he's writing the letter of 2 Timothy and says that Demas has deserted me because he loved the world. Even those who look okay to our human eyes can be corrupted. We must know how to take men out of power. Whatever church you're in, I don't mean for those of you who are visiting to cause huge troubles back at your home churches, so please don't go back and sort of, you know. I was at this church in Leeds, John T. Rhodes, he told me, I need to know how to get you sacked, you know. So, but but it, is, it is problematic, it is problematic if there is no accountability for those uh, in leadership. Uh, There's a great Scottish minister called Samuel Rutherford, um, who perhaps is most famous now for his letters, they're wonderful to read, you, you can buy them uh, even today. And after a church service one day, he was a great preacher, after a church service one day, a, a woman came up to him with his, with his children, and praised him for just the, 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 the way the sermon moved me. Uh, you are a man of God. We're blessed to have you. And on and on, on she went. In a way that frankly never happens. But anyway. Um, and he said this. Woman, if you knew the blackness of my heart, you would gather your children and run. If you knew the blackness of my heart, you'd gather your children and run. And apparently she was a bit off put by that. <laughs> but he's right. What's the punishment for these, these cannibalistic leaders, the powerful politicians? You see verse 4. Silence. God doesn't answer their prayers. When the Assyrians come, then they, the they there is the, the leaders, not just the people, they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer. He will hide his face from them because they've made their deeds evil. See the logic? They're the powerful ones. And whilst they had the power, they were top dog, they would exploit the weak. But suddenly someone more powerful comes on the scene. And so they cry out to God to save them because they're the weak. And God says, no way. I'm not putting up with that hypocrisy. Remember at school, I was at boarding school, eight of us lived in a particular house in my year, and there was one, I won't name him, <laughs> but there was, one, there was one kid who was top dog and bullied the, 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 sort of the, the weak one in the herd. It's not me, by the way, it wasn't a confession. Either one. Um, but anyway, and then this other guy came transferred. He'd been kicked out of another school, was expelled. And as is the case in schools that we have to pay for education, they'll take anyone. Um, so in he came. In he came, and suddenly the power dynamic changed. The new guy was top dog. And the bully became the bullied, and he was furious, and he complained, and, and eventually left the school. But no one had any sympathy, because he'd spent the last three years persecuting this poor, uh, this poor boy. Unless we think this is just something Old Testament. Uh, let me read to you. Don't turn to it for the, for the sake of time, but let me read from 2 Peter. Uh, where Peter is... He's talking to husbands. Now, I'm going to read a verse, and straight away you'll hear one word and think, oh, no, go on. Ignore that word for a minute. But by the same... No, wrong letter. 1 Peter. (laughs) 1 Peter 3. Peter says this uh, to the husbands. Uh, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, be kind to your wives, understanding, gentle with your wives as the weaker vessel. Now, I know you hear weak and whoa, you're sexy. Like, at the very least, we're not going to go into it all now. At the very least, weaker physically, on the whole, usually in a marriage, the husband, the man is going to be physically stronger, usually. Okay, generalizations. And also in that society, that the husband, in Roman society, the husband had absolute power of the family. 
Uh, he could legally have wives, children executed just on his own whim. Okay, so at the very least, okay, those two things. But, but my point is this, what, why? There's all sorts of reasons why you should care for those who are weak in you. But here, Peter says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you're you know, abusing your wife, exploiting your power over her, and then crying out to God, do you expect God to listen? No. God cares about the vulnerable. Tragically, it's not just the, the politicians, but the preachers uh, that come into the firing line. Verse 5 onwards, the, the, the target changes. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. The problem with these prophets, they've turned into vending machines. You know what vending machines are? Have you ever, ever, so when you go to, you know, maybe at school or swimming pool, you, you put in, uh, and they're the machines with all the um, chocolate in. Okay. Mum never, never shown you. Okay, uh, there we go. Um, machine, sorry. Um, uh, the machines, you, you put in 50p and you get a Mars bar. You put in a pound, you get a can of Coke. What you put in, you get out. And that's what these prophets are, have become. Uh, look at verse 5. They cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Uh, what's the point? Well, if you pay them, give them a sandwich, they'll give you a blessing. Yes, the Lord bless you. The Lord is for you. The Lord, you don't give to them, they'll declare war against you. Curse be you. Or verse 11, what do we see? Well, it's bribery again. It's priests teach for a price. It's prophets practice divination for money. Yet then they lean on the Lord and say, here's not the God in the midst of us. No disaster will come upon us. Hey, we're part of God's people. We're okay. It's not saying you don't pay ministers. But, but, at the, but what it is saying is that those called to speak God's word I should do so irrespective of how they're treated by God's people. Uh, maybe you know the story of, of John Tetzel. Uh, John Tetzel, uh, back in the, in the early 1500s, was, was commissioned by the Pope uh, to raise money, uh, raise money for the building of a, 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 a cathedral, ultimately. And he had the unfortunate um, job of wandering into to the area where Martin Luther, who at this stage was still a, a monk, still Catholic, uh, Martin Luther, uh, lived. And, and, and Tetzel was selling what are called indulgences. And the idea was that if you gave money, that then you would, to put it simply, you'd get a piece of paper signed by the Pope or the Catholic Church saying that, that your family member or you can have a certain number of years of purgatory, which was this place, not in the Bible, invented place, where you go as a kind of waiting room to heaven, where you pay off your sin, and then finally you'll be allowed into heaven. The more money you put in, the more years you get off purgatory. So Tetzel had this rhyme, Every time a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You give me money, your family get to heaven quicker. It's just the same. And the result, verse 6 and 7, well, silence from God again. It shall be night to you without vision, darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. That last phrase is fascinating, isn't it? The sun shall go down on the prophets, the day shall be black over them. What does it suggest? It suggests that at one point the sun was shining on the prophets, that these aren't men who were just completely making everything up. They did have visions, but they weren't preaching them accurately. God was revealing the truth to them. They weren't utterly false prophets, but they were exploiting their position. And so God says the vision is going to be removed. I will no longer speak. You will no longer hear me. 
And again, uh, it's very New Testament. Uh, as Paul writes to, to Timothy, uh, that minister, uh, in a letter called to Timothy, uh, he says this, understand this, that in the last days, the last days of the days we're living in now, the last days there will come a time of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, un- heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. And you think, oh, these must be bad people who come into the, the church. Church, church members who, who, who get pulled astray. But Paul goes on. Among those are those who creep into ho- households and capture weak women burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. Th- these guys are teachers. They are in ministry. They're reverend so-and-so. And just in Micah's day, they're doing it for their own gain. And they'll also find a crowd. If you set up a ministry and you use the right language, talk about the spirit, talk about Jesus, you will draw a crowd. And the more you hold back on sin, on God's judgment, on the need for repentance, the bigger the crowd will get. In Paul's phrase, uh, the time is coming when people won't endure sound teaching, healthy teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We want teachers who teach us what we want to hear. Who wants to hear about judgment? About God's wrath? These are the things that, that Micah spoke about in the first two chapters of his letter. Who gets out of bed on a Sunday morning to hear that, that, that ultimately there is a place called hell that, that won't be empty? So we'll go to the church. We don't hear about it. Thank you. Often you can, you can judge a ministry, a church, a conference, a, not just by what they do say, but what they don't say. I'm not saying this morning, Micah is not saying, the Holy Spirit is not saying to us through Micah, that, that unless you hear about hell and judgment every week, it's not a proper ministry. Of course not. But if you never hear about it, Uh, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh, who is like God. That's our big question for the book. Uh, it starts and finishes the book. Who is like Yahweh? What is God like? Ultimately, what is, what is Jesus like? There are careers to be made, money to be made, salaries to be had, concealing what Jesus is like, but speaking about Jesus. There are congregations to be grown, missions to be run, saying, verse 11 of Micah, no disaster will fall us. God is a God of love. So any way you want to express that love is fine. God is a God who never judges, who says to us, do not judge. So is he going to judge? Of course not. Try your best and everything's fine. Love wins, love rules. All tiny bit true, half true, but not at all true when you look in the big context. Uh, in contrast, Micah in verse 8 is the spirit-filled man. Do you see that? I, says Micah in verse 8, as for me, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might. I'm the really strong one, says Micah. He's on his own. He's not strong physically, powerfully. He's not a tough guy. But I'm really strong because I'm spirit-filled. And what's the evidence of it? What's the evidence of being a spirit-filled Christian, having a truly prophetic ministry, according to verse 8? You see? 
Well, he declares to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Spirit-filled prophets put their finger on the sins of God's people, transgressions. They have the courage to do so, even when it's going to not benefit them at all. When you get to the New Testament, for, for reasons I'm not going to go into now, I don't think there are prophets like Micah anymore who can just literally speak the word of the Lord. Um, ask another time. But uh, the, the two kind of groups that inherit that mantle, as it were, are first of all that the preachers, Timothy is described, uh, Timothy's just a normal minister. He's described as a man of God. And that's a technical phrase in the Bible. It doesn't mean he's a bloke who likes God. Man of God is a word used, a phrase used to describe the prophets. And he is told to preach the word. One of the things this passage tells us is, is that the duty on those who are the teaching ministry to preach the whole word of God. But the other way, and this is perhaps more significant this morning, the other way that the word prophecy is picked up in the New Testament is in Acts 2. Do you know Pentecost when the Spirit falls? And Peter explains what's going on by quoting Joel and saying in, in these last days, everyone will prophesy. If you're a Christian, you're a prophet. Not that you get these magical visions like Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, but all of us could speak the word of God. We know the gospel. And so the challenge to us is, will we be spirit-filled prophets like Micah, willing to declare sin, transgression, judgment? Some of you have got mission weeks coming up in universities. Will sin be on the agenda? Or is Jesus simply the one who fulfills our desires we've got a desire for love and jesus will love you we've got a desire to be accepted and jesus will accept you and we've got a desire to care for the world and god cares for the world these are all true but they're not enough they're not the gospel spiritual christians declare and they do so not triumphalistically okay this isn't the guy shouting on the street through a loud hail like you're all going to hell and God hates it. Not at all. Why is Micah doing this? In verse 1, he was weeping when he was doing it. So chapter 1, lamenting. They're doing so so that people will will fly for refuge, will find the mercy that God offers. This this bribery. This bribery happens not just when our friends give us a tenner to shut up. That probably never happens, does it? But when there's this sort of implicit deal, you'll accept me, the, the Christian, He's therefore a bit weird. You'll accept me and I can be part of the group. You'll respect me, look up to me, think I'm not one of those sort of weirdo Christians. That's what you give me. That's what you pay me, acceptance. And in return, I'll shut up about all the stuff that's uncomfortable, about how you need to repent and believe. Think about it in my own family setting, you know, Christmas lunch. Both my wife and I come from non-Christian families. They're kind of fine with us being Christians as long as we shut up. It'll cost us if we speak. And so the deal is, we'll accept you, we'll have a nice Christmas dinner, and everyone just keep quiet. Now again, I'm not saying every, you know, repent, repent every time you see your mum or whatever, not at all. But it's not never. So, preachers, politicians, the priests, the powerful, they're exploiting the people, feeding off them. Power is used for the benefit of the powerful. Religion has always been like that. It's a tool to control the weak. And ultimately, that, that, that is what gods are like. In days gone by, you would sacrifice to the gods, wouldn't you? You'd bring your goat and you'd sacrifice it on the altar and it was a gift. You're feeding your God in in some cultures or you're giving him a gift. 
But it's not that different today. Uh, perhaps some of you here this morning, you'd say, look, I'm not religious at all. This isn't a problem for me. I don't have a God that I have to appease. But you, in the words of Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody. Yeah, remember that song? You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You might be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Maybe the devil. It may be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. We give our lives to career, and it's a bribe. They, they, they're exploiting us. As long as I'm useful to them, well, they'll look after me. But they'll take every hour the mental stress. If, if career is what, what I live for, it'll devour me. If being beautiful is what I live for, then it'll slowly devour me as I get older, as my beauty fades. It'll just devour me. It is a cannibalistic God. A pleasure. We, you know, I was thinking about pornography, the snare of pornography that, 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 that entraps so many people. Well, it's offering a gift, isn't it? Satan always offers gifts in the garden. What, what did Satan do? He offered a gift to Eve. Take the fruit. I'm a giver. I'm the generous one. Sin always offers. It's generous, smiley, friendly. Pornography offers pleasure. But you're going to have to pay a huge price. The time wasted. The way it distorts your attitude to members of the opposite sex. Deadens relationships. Isolates you from people. There's always a cost. It looks like it's giving, but actually it's taking. All gods do that, apart from the true God. The God of the Bible doesn't need anything from, from you. That is such good news. You know that? God needs you not at all. He doesn't need your prayers, doesn't need your songs, doesn't need your worship, doesn't need your service, doesn't need your help. He needs you not at all. He would have lacked nothing if he'd never bothered making the world. If he'd never bothered making you, he's got nothing, le- nothing, nothing less. He's the blessed God, the Bible tells us. He's got everything he needs, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is such good news because it means he doesn't need to exploit you. He doesn't need anything from you. There's no catch, no quid pro quo, no small print in the contract. Everything he says and does is therefore for your benefit. It's because he wants to give, not take from you. When Jesus comes, when God himself comes to earth, uh, one time he's he's been teaching all day and there's 5,000 men and all their wives and children, no doubt, loads of people, and there's no food. And someone finds a five loaves and a couple of fishes. What would a cannibalistic leader do, prophet? Well, I'm the one teaching. You better give that to me. It's my due for a day's work. I've been preaching to you all day. What does Jesus do? Takes it, blesses it, and feeds them. He has come to give, not to take. And the people reflect on this, and some of them are sharper than others, and say, this is a bit like the Exodus. Remember when God fed us in the wilderness? Uh, there's something going on here. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. I've come to give you life. So eat me. The cannibal prophets eat the people, tear the flesh, they eat. Jesus says, no, you eat me. Strange language, isn't it? Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Eat me. Which explains means believing in him ultimately. He has come to give life. What does that mean? Jesus' body is broken to give you life. That means you can trust him. Whatever he calls you to do, however hard it may look, is for your good. There's no hidden agenda. He's not getting anything out of you. Whatever he does in your life ultimately is for your good because he loves you. He needs nothing from you. 
You can trust him. He is safe and good. He is the only one with power who we can be sure is fully for us. But it cost him his own life. Serving him is good. Uh, Being wholehearted is not going to get you into trouble. He is only here to give and to bless. He, God, will gain nothing from you, but he'll give you everything. Uh, He is the God on whom we feed. He is the God who is pure goodness, pure grace and pure gift. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, we pray uh, that you will uh, take down the barriers in our, our hearts and minds that Uh, that fear you and shy away from you. Uh, We praise you so much that though we turn from you, you still came to give in grace and mercy. Lord Jesus, we praise that your body was broken, your flesh torn, that we might live. And so we pray that your spirit will be poured on us, that we might feed on you, take our life from you. Uh, And give us hearts that, that trust you 100%, that don't fear the commands in your word, don't fear the circumstances you bring us to in life because you are good. Don't let us fall into that trap of uh, Satan in in Eden, where we believe that you're holding something back, that life without you, life in rebellion, is is more blessed. But rather, would we see the beauty and goodness of living wholeheartedly for you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.